What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another week, another pod, a bunch of good stuff to get into. Like usual, going to talk the Rihanna Super Bowl halftime show, new albums from Carolyn Polachek, Kalayla, Paramore, as well as Channing Tatum back on our lives with Magic Mike's Last Dance, new film. So a bunch of good stuff to get into. Check the time codes below and make sure you subscribe. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Wherever the pod is, go find it. Go get it. Just make sure you get it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a reaction to Rihanna's Super Bowl halftime performance. Super Bowl halftime show. Super Bowl 57. Apple Music halftime now. Pepsi halftime is no more. But finally, Rihanna did the halftime show after declining it in 2019 after being at the top of many people's lists as someone who has not yet done the halftime show but of course would be a great choice we finally got the rihanna super bowl halftime show and i thought it was quite impressive for a number of reasons and once again not that i think anyone needs this but adds to the hype anticipation for new rihanna music of course it has been over seven years since the last Rihanna album, Anti, came out in early 2016. It's been so long. And Rihanna, of course, has been less involved with her music career than you know she had been prior. Of course, Fenty is a massive success and a big part of Rihanna's life and career now. But to have her you know, kind of return to music in the way she did at, at you know, the biggest, if not the biggest stage when it comes to music was, I think, really cool. And... And there's really three reasons why this was a success. One, undeniable track list of songs. Rihanna has myriad hits, and she went through a medley of, I believe, 12 uh, with the halftime show. So, like, the music is just so, so good, of course. And then number two would be just presentation. Like, Rihanna's presence, uh, unsurprisingly, is incredibly strong. She, of course, has always come across as someone with tremendous confidence, tremendous swag. She just always kills it whenever she's doing really anything. And that really came across with this show. I think the stage design for the halftime show was really cool with the level uh, level platforms. You know, the Super Smash Bros. memes were, were very funny, but the levitating platforms moving up and down, I think was really cool. And third would be uh, the special guest, as it were. A lot of people were theorizing, who would it be? Would it be Jay-Z? Would it be ASAP Rocky, her lover? Would it be somebody else uh, entirely? Drake, perhaps. I was never really convinced or, or confident that a guest would appear just because a lot. Of, I think a lot of the candidates don't actually really make sense to upstage or attempt upstage Rihanna in any way. Like, I don't think Jay-Z would ever really want to do uh, that to Rihanna. If anything, Jay-Z would just do his own show separately. And and Rocky, you know, I feel like Rihanna and Rocky wouldn't actually want to like mix their music careers with their personal lives in that way and obviously Kanye not a consideration at this time so and Drake you know Rihanna's kind of curved Drake long ago so not 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 a great realistic pick either but what was that special guess it was actually the fact that Rihanna's pregnant with her second child with Rocky and that was a big surprise she was performing uh pregnant you know uh shades to Beyonce doing the belly rub at uh was the VMAs or the whatever that was, you know, like 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, but that Rihanna was able to do the halftime show, come out of the woodwork and give us music once again, 
and smash it in the way she did, you know, with that stage presence while being pregnant. I think that is like really like the icing on the cake with what makes this uh, such a, I think, a fulfilling uh, Super Bowl halftime show. And you know, I'm not, <laughs> as much as I'm happy for Rihanna and Rocky as a, as a couple as as people. I think the fact that they're having another kid so soon doesn't feel like uh was it R R9 the upcoming album post anti doesn't feel like uh R9 is anywhere close unfortunately uh we will continue to wait with bated breath but this almost felt like if anything like it wasn't like an announcement of Rihanna's back Rihanna's got new music on the way which is maybe how some people felt when this halftime show was announced. And that's not really what it was. This is more like Rihanna, like briefly returning to music, showing you that she's still got it. And by the way, all those songs that you know and love still great, but she's probably going to step away once again. So I think we have to just kind of get used to that feeling, you know, been a long time, you know, and ASAP Rocky, his last album was 2018, although he says his, uh, next record is done, so we'll see if it actually comes out. He's been saying that for a little bit now, but um, yeah, I think uh, my favorite aspect of like the actual like, performance itself, like the actual music, like I think just go kind of whipping through that medley was a lot of fun. You know, I think um, a lot of people were saying like <laughs> afterwards, like all the songs that didn't get picked because Rihanna has so many hits. You know, no, please don't stop the music, no Disturbia, no Palm to Replay, etc. Yeah, it's okay though because like the songs you did get, like, uh, do you have any beef with any of these tracks? Like, I think the opener, "Bitch Better Have My Money," that was a probably a less conventional choice than people would have expected, especially if you look at like the betting markets on like what was uh, what that was going to be. Nice choice though, I like that. Um, and then really quickly, you know, getting into "Only Girl in the World," we found love, "Rude Boy," "Pour It Up." You know, I would have loved more anti songs to be honest. I mean, you get work of course the biggest hit from that record and i believe some of kiss it better <clears throat> was part of the rude boy melody but more kiss it better or needed me or something like there are better tracks on anti than work but of course work is the big hit so not surprising that that was the selection love hearing the wild thoughts feature that's you know until we got the black panther 2 song that just came out i believe the wild thoughts feature was like the last like significant rihanna <clears throat> work we had got it's been so long again um the biggest surprise musically was Rihanna doing all the lights her chorus on, of course, the Kanye smash, you know, to kind of repurpose a Kanye song as your own. Uh, really cool. And um, that, that was a, a, the biggest moment musically, I think to me, just for the unexpectedness, you know, and then at the end run this town and umbrella, I was like, eh, Jay-Z is coming. Here's the chance, but no. And then ending with diamonds, you know, n n nice, uh, Nice selection of songs, I would say, overall. I would have loved, I think, Disturbia. Of all the songs that weren't picked, Disturbia, I think, would have hit. But truthfully, she doesn't, you know, just looking at these selections, she didn't really lean too deep into, like, the, you know, first few albums, Rihanna. It's more about the 2010s work that she that she picked. So, you know, what's next for Rihanna? Like I said, I think it's going to be a while. Um, you literally had a Fenty reference in this performance, which I think was really funny, where she like you know does some powder briefly in between uh songs, in between uh stage movements. Thought that was pretty funny, but uh, yeah, I think um, Rihanna off the board. You know, she had been a very popular selection for like who should do the next Super Bowl, Rihanna, but she never do it. She did it. So who's next, right? Like, there's a few 
obvious big names, including someone who's rumored to be the 2023 halftime show. But that turned out not to be true, of course. That'd be Taylor Swift. You got to figure Taylor Swift and Adele at one point will both do this show. After that, though, I'm not really sure who has the the gravitas and large profile to do this. You know, I mean, I'm sure Drake could could pull it off. But overall, I'm pretty happy with how it's gone. Think about the 2020s. The halftime show has gone really well. J-Lo and Shakira, The Weeknd, Dr. Dre and Friends, and now Rihanna. Like, really can't have too many complaints about how it's been going. And the pressure's on the NFL and now Apple Music to uh, keep this momentum going. So let me know in the comments below. Who do you want to see do the Super Bowl halftime show? Uh, did you want to see a guest with Rihanna that we didn't get? Who would that have been? Let me know. And for more music, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Carolyn Polachek's second album, Desire, I Want to Turn Into You. So Carolyn Polachek, I think, has been someone who I know I have been eagerly anticipating this next record, the second solo album from Carolyn. Uh, she, of course, has an indie band past, but her album 20, in 2019, Pang, kind of like reestablished her as a soloist in the pop space. And uh, So Hot You're Hurting My Feelings off that first record became a bit of a TikTok hit. Not a massive song by any means, but... Carolyn Polachek's, I think, profile definitely risen to the point where I was curious to see what would be next. You know, she had the feature on Charlie XCX's album last year, on New Shapes, went on tour with Dua Lipa. You know, definitely a rising artist. And what would be her follow-up, you know, with, you know, all these eyes on her, or the most eyes she's ever had on her, right? And we get this new album, Desire, and I think it is kind of in line with expectations in the sense that Carolyn Polachek is definitely like the pop auteur, alternative pop type of artist. That doesn't necessarily mean she's like super like weird and out there. It's not like she's going down the hyper pop lane. You know, she's she's not she's not Charlie. Let's just be, be upfront about that. But you know, eleven of the twelve songs of Desire are produced by Harl, who's a from the PC music camp. Of course, PC music very closely aligned with Charlie, so you kind of understand why they're in similar circles, perhaps why they previously collaborated before. It does make some sense. And I think this record, the thing that disappointed me at least a little bit about it is the fact that it's had such a long rollout. We've heard like a third of these songs already as singles. I mean, the very first, the oldest song on this, Bunny is a Rider, came out in 2021. You know, uh, Billions came out in 2022. I think those happen to be two of, if not the best songs off desire and they're both incredibly old which is a bit of a i guess a, a soft disappointment you know when it comes to evaluating the music because the songs you like the ones you already know the best but um i think what's cool about carolyn as an artist is especially on this record is she does dabble a bit a bit, a bit in, in different different genres i think vocally you know it's not so much that she is like a wow you with vocal strength type of artist but she is an interesting a vocalist in terms of how she goes about her singing and I think kind of matching that with this production but it, it stands out more on some songs than others and I think that really goes to that like genre selection genre choice that she does like right off the bat opening this uh the album up with Welcome to My Island a song that has been out um you know that that's a song that it's a bit funny because she's almost like pseudo rapping in the second half of the track which is not something I would have expected but overall I like the track um 
Bunny is a Rider, as I mentioned, old, old song at this point, but that is a bop. That has a really propulsive bass. I think that is a, a great track and probably one of my favorite Karen Polishek songs is like straight up. Love that one. You know, uh, keep, keep it going here. Uh, Sunset uh, has got a lot of attention, I think. You know, it kind of gives you that island vibes, almost like a flamenco inspired song. I've seen a bit of a mixed reception to that in terms of like how effective that is as like a flamenco nod and flamenco pastiche but i think it's i think it's pretty good like the carolyn polachek like falsetto vocals like that's usually how she does things with falsetto that seems to i think really land on that style of production so i enjoyed that one uh you know i think a song like hope drunk everything that's one that I thought was a bit like too sleepy. Like it has a like, choir vibes towards the end, but that's kind of the thing with Carolyn's vocals. At times, I can just really lose myself in the the kind of the sleepiness, the dreaminess of some of some of the the music. And it's clearly what she's going for, but it doesn't always engage me. You know, later on, a song like "Smoke," though, that has a really uh, signature, uh, significant like drum line throughout. And the performance from Carolyn is like very energetic. So that's kind of like the, the Carolyn that I like the most. Um, the last track, which has been out, Billions, I, I think is really awesome as well. The synths there, just super choice. So I think like overall, you know, interesting artist. She's pushed back on the Carolyn Polachek is this generation's Kate Bush comparison. She's not a fan of those thoughts, but I do understand where they come from. And, you know, in terms of like alternative like pop artists, I do think she's still honing in on what that sonic identity as a soloist is. Not that it's not uh, there in some respects, but I just think that her music is a bit up and down to me or almost production dependent to me. So I would love to continue to hear more and see more of that artistic growth. She's clearly a very intentional artist in, you know, I think her songwriting, which is probably the most consistent thing about you know, desire as an album and paying for that matter. So uh, I'll be keeping my eye on what's next. And I know she's going on tour. I'm thinking about going to that. So let me know what you thought about Carolyn Polachek's new album, Desire. Did you like it? Was it a slight disappointment? What were you thinking? And for more pop music or music reviews, subscribe and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Kalela's second album, Raven. It's been five and a half years since Kalela's debut album take me apart came out in 2017 an album i liked a lot i that was an album clearly as an artist really came out of nowhere for me in 2017 but i was really a huge fan of that record the song uh, let me know in particular one of my favorite songs of 2017 i actually was able to catch Kalela at governor's ball in 2018 see her perform which was really cool as well but it's been a long time to this point you know, till get, getting Raven. Obviously, the pandemic's a part of that, but still, long wait. And I think I was very excited about this record. You know, it's not that Take Me Apart was a huge album by any means. Clay was definitely a more underground, uh, less uh, populist R&B artist. But I think for those who know, they're really excited for what would be next from her. And I think Raven definitely is is that. You know, I think... Clayla as an artist, I think, is just really stands out for this unique brand of R&B music, really uh, giving you kind of multi-layered production and kind of molding that R&B genre that we associate uh, with so many female artists these days, but taking that R&B genre and molding it into 
electronic production and club production and all kinds of stuff and giving you i think rewarding music that uh is worth revisiting for its multi-layered uh nature and just in general it's just very engaging stuff and raven honestly i would say it is more of that you know i think if anything kalila has leaned into the electronic side of the production to, for her r&b you know brand even further and that, that that is very evident she's worked with uh, there's numerous electronic producers all over the credits for Raven. You know, you think of a song like Contact. That really stands out to me just for these looping club beats, but they're still, like, subtle. You know, it's like a... And then beat you over the head with it, but it's definitely a club vibe, you know? Um, a song like Raven, the title track. Uh, that second half of that song is super groovy, but it's, like, drum and bass music, you know? Uh, I just, I just kind of love uh, the, the propulsion that you get from this. It's uh, I think it's really really exciting. Um, on the run, perhaps my favorite song of all. I believe this was a single. Man, the beat on this is just incredibly catchy, and that hook, particularly the Kalila hook, the performance of that hook, uh, is spectacular. I really love that. Um, and yeah, I think uh, Sorbet, another song I like. I really love the way that song builds or the progression of the track. Uh, but yeah, I think it's just overall just album that I certainly need to spend more time with. Uh, to f- fully fully appreciate and i think that's obviously so exciting when you get music that has a lot going on and really warrants kind of digging the crates and understanding what were those musical influences and what what is what was clearly going for as an artist you know i think r&b music specifically female r&b music is a vast uh field these days looking no farther than uh SZA, of course hitting number one for like what eight weeks or whatever the biggest longest running number one from a female artist since Taylor Swift's folklore R&B is hot up and down and and women run R&B no question but that also leaves room for someone who's not going to be as famous or as on the charts as some of her peers and that of course would be someone like Kalayla so definitely would recommend Clearly, as an artist, just broadly, as well as Raven as Alan specifically. But leave a comment. Let me know what you think of this record. Uh, how are you feeling about Clayla's status in R&B music? And for more music reviews, more R&B reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. And now let's move on to Paramore's sixth album, This Is Why. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Paramore's sixth album, This Is Why. Man, Paramore feels like they never really went away since the last album dropped that'd be 2017's after laughter been a long wait when you think about it that way i think a big part of this is a Haley williams of course the the star the lead vocalist of paramore Haley williams dropped some solo albums recently two of them to be exact and also i think paramore just kind of really become a touch point for some rising artists the past few years look no further than of course olivia rodrigo's song good for you which took so much inspiration from Paramore's signature song, Misery Business, that uh, Paramore eventually became accredited writers on said track, but also even other artists like Willow Smith, for example. This kind of brand of 2000s pop punk has lived on with the next generation and is cited as a musical influence, which is super cool, which of course is funny because if you think about Paramore, they are not afraid and exa- and in fact are really excited to shift their sound and I believe, uh, to use their own words, not be a nostalgia band, which I think is really cool. After Laughter, of course, substituted out pop punk for synth pop, which I think was really effective. Of course, it was on like, Hard Times, incredibly catchy. 
But now Paramore is kind of back closer to their roots, but it's almost more of an alternative rock direction, which I think is pretty interesting. And um, it just, I think just in general, like Haley Williams, as well as the other two members, Zach Farrow and Taylor York, they seem to, I think, have a really intentional and specific vision for what they want to do as a band when they are together. And of course, they've spent time apart uh, over the over you know over the last ten years for sure, and in the time since after laughter. So the fact that they came back together with I think a specific vision in mind for a type of record to make was pretty cool. And I think what's so great about this is why it's just man, it, it is such a tight, succinct record. Ten songs, thirty six minutes does not overstay its welcome at all. And I, I really love that about it. You know, I think just in general, like the guitar and the drums, incredibly out of tempo almost the whole time, which I, I personally really enjoyed. A song like um, track two, The News, really stands out for that kind of sound. Um, this is why the title track, track one, that, that is probably one of the most alternative tracks on the record, but just a jam. Just love it. You know, just a banger. Uh, it's good stuff. You know, I think, um, uh, was it, uh, make sure I pronounce this one right, uh, Say Com Sa, track four. I've seen some uh, feedback on that track that it's almost like a bit over the top, a bit uh, overly indebted to those kind of musical influences that they've been citing, like Block Party, for example, as, as a reference point. But I don't know, I thought that was pretty fun. I think a big part of that is just Hayley Williams, as a vocalist, has always come across as someone with a big personality. It comes across in her vocals, and that's not doesn't doesn't distract from the fact that Haley is a tremendous singer. You know, I, I still to this day can reflect well on. I believe it's a Grammys YouTube video from 2013 where Paramore does Misery Business uh, acoustic and acapella, uh, or, or uh, sorry, acoustic, and you just hear Haley's uh, pure singing on that song and. She's incredibly talented, and you hear that again all over this record. So I think even like a song like uh, "Say Com Sa" might be like a little corny, I guess you could say. Like Haley's so fun on it that I can't help but like it. It kind of reminds me of some of the stuff on her solo records that we've got in the past few years. Um, yeah, I think um, the last track "Thick Skull" roasted out to me as well. But like I said, just generally, like there wasn't really a song I disliked on this record, which I think speaks to the tightness and then the specific vision that Paramore was giving you on this me personally i probably like after laughter more just because i love that more like poppy direction but i think hats off to them for continuing to want to reinvent themselves as they enter their third decade as a band like i think that's so beyond impressive and would anyone have blamed them if paramore went back to the pop punk well given how in the zeitgeist that has been in broader pop music the past, you know, two, three years. I don't think anyone would have been that for all, but the fact that they didn't take that route and decided to put a new spin on what they do and shocker, it's still good, even though it's something they haven't really done before. And again, hats off to them. Uh, so yeah, let me know. what did you think of Paramore's uh, new record? Are you happy with this new direction? What's your favorite song on it? And for more music reviews, subscribe and I'll see you next time. Now let's move on to the Belgian film, which is Oscar-nominated, Close. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Close, the Belgian film from Lucas Daunt, directed by Daunt, co-written by Daunt, his first film since his debut, Girl, from 2018. This is a film that is was the Belgian 
submission for the Best International Feature Film Oscar and was, in fact, one of those five nominees up there to potentially win at the Oscars next month. And, you know, this is a movie that won some festival prizes, uh, you know, after premiering at Cannes last year. And I had heard a lot of good things about Close. I've been waiting for it to come out. It only just recently got a limited release going over in the U.S., you know, after that Oscar nomination. So I had been interested in seeing what, what, what this was about, obviously. And I will spoil it in a second, but I'll just start off by saying I like the film. It is a challenging watch for sure. For sure, if you know anything about what the movie has got going on, it is heavier subject matter. So keep that in mind. But I think it is a really strong movie and perhaps most impressive for the acting performances of its lead, uh, Eden Dombrian, who plays Leo, you know, a 13-year-old kid. Uh, very impressive to see a child actor carry a film as well as uh, Eden did. Yeah, that's certainly no given. So the, the, the acting is tremendous, but also just, I think, the subtlety of don't screenplay and direction, like, it's a movie with some really heavy themes and in the hands of someone else could be incredibly heavy handed, but it is actually impressive with how understated this movie is both in its messaging and how it handles the, um, you know, kind of inciting incidents and conflicts that really drive the, the plot and message of this film. So I just say, you know, if you can handle heavier stuff, I'd absolutely recommend close. It'll be, I think hard for a lot of people to see, at least in the United States, but it'll hit VOD, um, you know, in due time. So keep an eye out for that. I'm going to spoil close now. So again, check those time codes, come back when you've seen the movie, or if you want to get spoiled, here we go. So close is a movie about two young boys, 13 year old boys in Belgium. As I said, Eden Dumbrine plays Leo and his best friend. Uh, Remy is played by Gustave de Whaley. And these are, you know, two, two really close friends who are uh, about to enter high school. They live in like a small rural town in Belgium and, you know, they, they spend time together uh, on the farm that Leo's family works on, like a flower farm harvesting. They go to school together. They hang out together. And they've become, like, incredibly uh, close, as the movie might suggest, in this lead-up to going off to their new school. And it's kind of like an unspoken relationship, kinship, that even, like, the, the parents of both boys doesn't, don't really uh, speak on. But they, they have a really intimate relationship. And, you know, once you, once Leo and Remy get to their new school, uh, you know, they, they start to encounter some comments from other, other, other boys, other kids at school, kind of pointing out that they're almost like coupled up. They get asked by some girls, like, what, what's, what's going on? Are you guys together? And because these boys are so young, it, it's not something that they've really, they certainly not discussed it themselves. It's not really something they've has even thought about or like it's a it's a phenomenon that they fully understand i think that's what's really impressive about close as a film is that it's handling you know like uh same-sex relationship but just intimacy broadly in general with between men or, or young boys it's handling that with the grace required of something with this happening with with people so young because people this young can't really express how they're feeling about something like this they barely understand what they're feeling, let alone how society, unfortunately, might view that, right? I think that's what's really cool about this film, because that premise, that that presentation, I think, is really intelligent. Uh, but moving on there, you know, Leo, whether it's subconscious or not, seems to almost be 
giving in to some uh, homophobia, in a sense, he's encountering and starts to push, you know, Remy aside a little bit, where, you know, openly says that they're not like together, whereas Remy hasn't really spoken on the matter. You can tell that they are not in sync the way they once were. You know, Leo starts to hang out with some other boys, starts biking to school with somebody else, joins the hockey team as a hobby and doesn't include Remy in that pursuit. And Remy gets really upset about Leo effectively kind of pushing him away. You know, not like they had a fight or anything, although they do come to uh, blows, you know, as, as young boys kind of do wrestling wise. They haven't really, they haven't really talked about it. Leo just kind of pushed him away and, you know, started socializing with other people. And it's a messy situation. Um, and as you can imagine for two, uh, you know, pubescent boys trying to think about how they feel about themselves, their friendship or whatever that uh, relationship may be and how they find themselves in the world. And then not soon after the inciting incident of this movie happens again, spoilers to come. Uh, Remy kills himself uh, at home in the bathroom and close doesn't really, sh- doesn't show that, you know, uh, again, like the, the restraint that close as a uh, brings as a movie is in the fact that how it tells you that kind of stuff is uh, I think done well. And it really shifts from a movie about, you know, how young people might view themselves in the world to a movie about grief and being able to process that grief and move forward, especially when you feel some culpability in what has happened. And Leo uh, really struggles to repress or, or um, he attempts to repress his emotions and his guilt that he feels uh, he believes he is responsible for pushing Remy to kill himself. And you know, Leo strikes up a relationship of sorts with Remy's mother. And they are both kind of having this grief in obviously very different ways. And, you know, I think the movie, the ending was not my favorite. Not that I disliked the ending, but I think it's almost a little too neat. Whereas I thought everything else leading up from close, it was really, I think, handled really deftly. Whereas I guess they try and put a decent enough bow on it in terms of like shared grief and finding a way to, you know, move, move on and move forward. It's, it's, it's a complicated film, but I think more than anything, I really appreciate how this movie handled, I think, social pressures in a really honest and realistic way, which it is no small feat and just I just think those dynamics are handled really well and again shout out the child acting because if it didn't didn't work uh as well as it does in the movie probably doesn't work as well as it does so i would even if i didn't love the way it ended i think it's a very intelligent film really again really heavy movie but i think definitely worth people's time uh definitely makes you think and you know, I, I don't expect it to win the Oscar. All Quiet in the Western Front was nominated for Best Picture. It is assuredly going to win Best International Feature Film. But Close is certainly a very just nominee in that category. Um, and if it did somehow win, I would welcome it. I think it's a worthy winner, winner for sure. So if you've seen Close, let me know what you thought of this movie. Again, there's a lot going on, a lot, of, a lot of difficult things going on in the movie. But how did you like it? And for more movie reviews, Oscars talk, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. And let's conclude with Magic Mike's 
Last Dance, the third Magic Mike film starring Channing Tatum. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Magic Mike's Last Dance, the third Magic Mike film starring Channing Tatum, Steven Soderbergh, back in the director chair. This film just came out in theaters last week. It was originally pegged to be an HBO Max release, but of course, the changes over at Warner Brothers Discovery has led this movie to come out in the theaters, although didn't get as big a release as it deserved, in my opinion. Only got like a 1500 theater count release. This movie should have opened wide, especially over Valentine's Day weekend. I feel like that's a big no-brainer. All the scuttlebutt about Hollywood insiders, people don't understand why this release was slow played. Seems like a missed opportunity for WB. But nonetheless, we're back with another Magic Mike movie, another Soderbergh movie. His like, gosh, what does it make? Like his seventh movie since 2017. Steven Soderbergh's working. We know, we know, we know he's busy. And we like that about him for sure. But uh, yeah, Channing Tatum, man. I'm just so happy he's back. You know, last year he made Dog in the Lost City. Now he's back as Magic Mike, back as Mike Lane. And Channing Tatum to me is just pure box office. He is a star, if ever there was one. I just think he's so likable and so so charming as a screen presence. And I really do love him as as Mike Lane, as 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 the titular Magic Mike. So. You know, Magic Mike XXL, which came out a while ago, back in 2015, was kind of billed as like the finale, but obviously this title suggests that it is the finale, you know, a movie where Mike Lane has aged once again. Some of his business pursuits in the past series have concluded or failed, as you could say. And next thing you know, Mike finds himself directing a stage production, not really uh, being one of the one of the guys, one of the strippers anymore, right? The Kings of Tampa, who we came to know in the first two movies, you know, Joe Manganiello and Matt Bomer and friends, those guys are not in Magic Mike's Last Dance, except for a brief, like, Zoom cameo, which was a choice for sure. I don't know if it was a great choice, because we do meet a bunch of other dancers, really talented guys doing dancing and choreography in the back half of Magic Mike's Last Dance, but those guys, we, we don't know them the way we know the Kings of Tampa characters. So, really, all the dramatic storytelling falls on just Mike this time, as well as, of course, a new character, Maxandra, played by Salma Hayek. And Salma Hayek's character, Max, she meets Chang Tatum and kind of brings him in to direct this stage play at a theater that she owns as a wealthy woman, as a way to kind of get back at her uh, estranged husband who cheated on her, but also as a way to perhaps express herself and, and feel fulfilled in what she's doing. So it's kind of an interesting premise that's very different from the first two Magic Mike movies. Um, it is kind of a cool presence, but in the sense, it's trying to split the difference between like two classic like story or filmmaking tropes, right? It's like, let's make the thing, make the show, make the movie. Let's get the, get the thing done on time, right? Let's make this stage show happen. And it's also trying to be like a romantic comedy at the same time where Mike and Maxandra have this on again, off again thing as they're working together. So it's a bit of a new framing for a Magic Mike movie. And I think it's a movie that I would say it's the worst of the three Magic Mike movies. It's not bad by any means, but it's just doesn't really feel nearly as tight as the first two films. And also doesn't really have as much humor as the first two films either. You know, I think Chang Tatum, part of why he's been so successful in these movies, in just general, is that he's very game. He's very open for the fact that he's a very handsome, you know, jacked man, and he doesn't 
is not afraid to, to to laugh about that. Maybe Abs laugh about himself, right? And taking Mike Lane out of that framing for most of this movie is a choice that I think works a little bit, but you know, I think I just wasn't as invested in like let's get this stage show uh story like done. And I think a big part of that is again, like we don't know these other dancer characters that they they've hired to make this play come to life. Obviously this takes huge inspiration from the Magic Mike stage play, theater play that or you know, that actually exists in real life. That that's the inspiration this time around. And that's like almost like too meta, whereas like the first uh, Magic Mike movie was inspired by Chang Tatum's real early life when he was a dancer. So it's a bit different. I think in this movie's favor, you have, I think, Salma Hayek really committed as Max. I think she's really fun. And I do like their dynamic, just like Salma Hayek bossing around Mike Lane is really, really fun. And uh, it's also a bit of a step up from some of the female actors we've had throughout the series. Like apart from like Olivia Munn, it, it's been a bit more of a mixed bag. Jada Pinkett Smith was really good in Magic Mike XL, but this is like the most fully fleshed out and developed female character in this series to date, which is I think is really good. But you know, I think if, if there's anything to recommend about Magic Mike's last dance, it's two clear set pieces. The first one in the very beginning of the movie, right after Max and Mike meet, Mike gives a really uh elongated private dance to Max after Max basically kind of propositions him about such a thing. And that is a incredibly sexy thing. You know, I think Shane Tatum is a really strong guy. So like the physical dexterity and just in general, like it's, it's very impressive. Some of those um, positions they find themselves in. And the other side is going to be the very end of that stage, but at the very end of the film, you have Max, or sorry, you have Mike and, this other dancer character, female character, doing this incredibly elaborate uh, dance, choreographed dance on the stage in front of everyone, you know, in, in water, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, simulated raining. And I think these two scenes, but especially that last scene in particular, it's about as close as like a sex scene can be to it being a sex scene went without the actual nudity. Like it is incredibly sensual shit it is incredibly physical. And that is, I think, worth the price of admission was those two scenes. Like, incredibly, <laughs> incredibly good shit, incredibly sexy. You know, I think that is why you go to watch Magic Mike, right? It's stuff like that. So those scenes are good, you know? And very early on in the in the, in the movie, uh, there's a callback to the first film where Mike meets a woman who he previously gave a dance to at that ill-fated sorority party in the first film. Like, that was a hilarious callback. But overall, like, I think it's a film that's a bit of two masters where it's trying to be that let's get the thing done film and let's also be a rom-com film at the same time. And both of those frameworks don't really get as much time as they need to succeed. So it's a bit of a mixed bag overall, but you know, Sama Hayek's really committed. I love Chang Tatum. I, I think I still think he's incredibly charming as Mike Lane third time around. So I think that's enough that's at least worth a watch if you're interested in it, but just know going in that it's a bit messier than the past two films. Now, maybe in a few more years, they make another one of these. I wouldn't be shocked. It, it's it's almost a fun well for Tatum and Soderbergh to return to. Kind of why not, you know? And Soderbergh, yeah, he's made a ton of movies since 2017 after his retirement. Have any of these movies been truly amazing, truly excellent? No, but none of them have been 
bad at all. I think I've liked all of them. They've all been good. They've all been fun. I think it's pretty cool that he works as fast as he does, and the quality really doesn't tip at all. You know, he's not making an Aaron Brockovich. He's not making Ocean's Eleven right now. But he's making a lot of fun, interesting stuff, genre stuff. He's working with good actors, and his next show is going to be an HBO Max series. So, you know, normally I would say I like my movie directors to make movies, but he's made so many movies lately, I think he's allowed to make a show if he wants. So, shout out to Steven Soderbergh, of course, one of the greats. But yeah, did you see Magic Mike's Last Dance? What did you think of it? Are you happy like me that Channing Tatum's back in our lives? Uh, what did you think? And for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Hey.